We don't think it's strange when musicians jam in their downtime, or when basketball players shoot some hoops with their friends. So I guess it shouldn't seem odd at all that songwriters might take a break from writing a song to, well, write a different song. And that's exactly what happened back in August of 1967 in room 388 of the Gatlinburg Inn. Felice and Boodle Bryant, perhaps best known for writing such classics as Bye Bye Love and Wake Up Little Susie, were working hard on a collection of slow tempo songs for Archie Campbell's Golden Years album. In the midst of this session, they decided to take a break from writing these songs to write a different song. Something more upbeat, Felice suggested. Something about the mountains. They wrote this song in about 10 minutes, set it aside, and got back to work writing The Golden Years. Later that year, 1967, the Osborne brothers were set to record at Nashville music producing legend Owen Bradley's barn studio in Mount Juliet. They had the studio booked for three hours and hoped to record four songs in that time. They only had three though, so Sonny Osborne called his friend Boodleau up and asked if he had any ideas. Boodleau remembered his little up-tempo 10-minute diversion and brought it to Sonny. It would do. They made their recordings, and this song went on the B-side opposite the ballad My Favorite Memory. It was released on Christmas Day. In early 1968, the Osbournes went on Ralph Emery's late-night show on WSM Radio in Nashville. WSM has been home to the Grand Ole Opry since 1925, and its 50,000 watts of clear channel broadcasting can be heard for hundreds of miles. Ralph Emery's show was a favorite of night shift workers, long-haul truckers, and night owls all over the region. He played their new record, My Favorite Memory, and then flipped it over to see what was on the other side. As soon as he heard the banjo intro kick in, his eyes lit up and he thought it was really something. He kept playing it, and soon other DJs were playing it too. This song, the B-side to a song you've never heard of, was Rocky Top, a song penned in just 10 minutes in a Gatlinburg hotel. Rocky Top would peak at number 33 on the charts, but it never faded away. Sonny Osborne later recalled, quote, at one time, we would open the show with it, and then play it again at the end. It was phenomenal, that song. We went to Japan, Sweden, Germany. You'd go anywhere and they'd know Rocky Top. It put our name out in front and it stayed there a long time. In October of 1972, the University of Tennessee's marching band played the song during halftime at a football game against Alabama. It caught on and has been played at every game since. While it remains their unofficial fight song, it is one of the most well-known in college football. Ten years later, on February 15, 1982, the Osborne brothers sang the song in the Tennessee State House, and it was officially adopted as the fifth Tennessee State song. Rocky Top has been recorded over a hundred times, including a 1970 version by Lynn Anderson that went to number 17 on the charts. It is played across the state, at parties, weddings, and funerals. Although they claim they didn't know about it at the time, and it was just a happy coincidence, there is a mountain called Rocky Top, just a few miles from Gatlinburg in the Great Smoky Mountains. It's a wonderful hike, which I did just a few weeks ago. And in 2014, the Tennessee town of Lake City officially changed its name to Rocky Top. I've had years of cramped up city life, trapped like a duck in a pen. All I know is it's a pity life, can't be simple again. Rocky Top, you'll always be home sweet home to me. Good old Rocky Top, Rocky Top, Tennessee. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is, as always, a pleasure to be with you today. 
Over the last few weeks, I've been exploring the eastern half of the great state of Tennessee to find the stories I'm going to tell you today. It's been a great few weeks in the mountains and parks and small towns for which eastern Tennessee is known. The people have been welcoming, and overall, it's been another great part of this journey. To find out more about the places I've been, be sure you check out my blog at www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. To get the whole story, be sure you find me on Facebook, on Twitter at Miles2GoTweet, and on Instagram at Miles2GoBeforeIsleep, all using the number two for me and you. Music this week comes from a very talented singer-songwriter named Sam Cooper, who I met in Nashville at Bobby's Idle Hour Bar. One of the songs is in collaboration with his friend Chris Gantry. Every Wednesday from noon until 8, Sam hosts Sam's Jams at the Idle Hour, a really wonderful afternoon of original music sung by the songwriters themselves. He also hosts a songwriter showcase every Monday at the Gold Rush, also in Nashville. To find out more about Sam or to download his music, head over to his website, www.jerrycat.com. That's www.jericat.com. This week's episode is dedicated to young Mason James Holman, born this morning, May 17th, to my best friend James and his wife, Kara. Welcome, Mason, to this great adventure of life. So let's get to it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy these stories from East Tennessee. church on Sunday morning, and old men sit and talk about their days of glory, and I've heard it all a thousand times, but I still love their stories, well I'm in this town and it's in me, and it's something we all share, it may not be The area now known as Tennessee was, at the time of the American Revolution, part of North Carolina. At the close of the war, North Carolina wanted to cede the Overmountain region, or the area west of the Appalachian Mountains, to the federal government to help pay off its war debt. The newly formed federal government did not jump at this opportunity. In August of 1784, a group of settlers in the region held a convention at Jonesboro, where they decided to form a new state called Franklin in honor of Benjamin Franklin. John Sevier was elected governor. Soon thereafter, a newly elected North Carolina legislature voted to rescind its offer of session. The Franklinites held on, though, and on May 16, 1785, submitted a petition for statehood to Congress in an effort to become the 14th state. While seven of 13 states voted in their favor, this fell short of the two-thirds majority set out in the Articles of Confederation. After this failed attempt, the citizens of Franklin began operating as an independent republic. Greenville was declared the capital, and a constitution was adopted. Franklin expanded by annexing five more counties. In 1786, North Carolina made a friendly offer to waive back taxes if Franklin residents would rejoin the state. Franklinites refused, and North Carolina sent in its militia under Colonel John Tipton. It re-established courts and set up government offices in Jonesboro. Franklin continued to expand and push the frontier westward. Tensions rose between Colonel Tipton of North Carolina and Governor Sevier of Franklin. When Tipton seized several of Sevier's slaves to settle a tax debt to North Carolina, Sevier led 150 militia to Tipton's farm. Tipton had about 45 of his own North Carolina militia there. Both demanded the others surrender, and shots were fired. When North Carolina reinforcements arrived, the Franklinites scattered. Following this so-called Battle of Franklin, the governor of North Carolina issued a warrant for Sevier's arrest. He was apprehended in Jonesboro on a booze run and sent back to North Carolina to stand trial for treason. To avoid this trial, he swore an oath of allegiance to North Carolina, 
and what was left of Franklin quickly dissolved. Somehow, Sevier was almost immediately elected to the North Carolina State Senate, and just months later helped convince North Carolina to once again cede its land west of the mountains to the federal government. While they were working to ratify this plan, Sevier was elected to the United States Congress, representing North Carolina's 5th District. The Overmountain region was organized as the Southwest Territory of the United States in 1790, with William Blount appointed territorial governor. In 1795, a referendum was held and showed that the people of the territory supported statehood. On June 1, 1796, the state to be called Tennessee was admitted to the Union as the 16th state. John Sevier was elected its first governor, and 29-year-old Andrew Jackson was elected its first congressman. Sevier and Jackson would, years later, meet in a duel outside of Knoxville. Thankfully, they managed to resolve their differences with words, instead of the intended pistols. But that is a story for another day. For today, though, I hope you enjoy these stories from the great state of Tennessee, the volunteer state, and from its official state slogan, America at its best. But music city's home, no one else can deliver. Good loving like those girls across the Cumberland River. I love them East Nashville girls. Ride you like amusement park to the world. Few names from American history can conjure up a more iconic frontier image than that of Davy Crockett, with a coonskin hat on his head and a rifle in his hand, tracking a bear through the woods of Appalachia. Who would think that he wasn't actually born in the United States? That's right, he was actually born in the completely unrecognized Independent Republic of Franklin on August 17, 1786. As we heard earlier though, that area would become part of the great state of Tennessee. Davy's grandfather, for whom he was named, and his grandmother were killed by Indians while Davy's father John was off fighting in the American Revolution. John was one of the Overmountain men who fought at the decisive battle of King's Mountain, which forced the British troops towards their destiny at Yorktown. After the war, though, John never seemed to be able to make ends meet, and eventually, with nine mouths to feed, not including him or his wife, it's easy to understand why. When Davy was a kid, his family moved around a lot. No matter what he tried, John Crockett always seemed to be in debt. When Davy was just 12, his father hired him out as a buckaroo on a 400-mile cattle drive to Natural Bridge, Virginia. That's quite an adventure for a 12-year-old. The following year, Davy went to school, where he lasted exactly four days. He had a difference of opinion with an older and larger boy, and on the fourth day, Davy hid and ambushed this other fellow and beat him up pretty bad. Afraid of the punishment that awaited him, he didn't go back to school. When his father found out, he came after Davy, but Davy was quick and got away. He ran off into the woods and didn't go home for almost three years. During that time, Davy joined another cattle drive, this one to Front Royal, Virginia, and then another to what is now West Virginia. He found work as a farmhand and eventually made his way to Christianburg, Virginia, where he apprenticed as, of all things, a hat maker. Well, maybe it's not so crazy for a man known for the hat he wore. In 1802, he returned home to Tennessee. It was Tennessee at that point, and he found his father, as usual, in debt. Davy went to work for a man named John Kennedy to help his father out. He stayed on working there for a while and met a girl named Polly Finley. They were married in 1806 and had three children together. In the wake of the massacre at Fort Mims, Davy joined the Tennessee militia, where he served mostly as a scout and hunter, helping forage for food and feed his unit. During the War of 1812, Andrew Jackson called on the Tennessee militia to help drive the British out of Florida. Davy re-enlisted, but didn't get there in time for the fight. Instead of following Jackson to New Orleans, Davy went home to Tennessee. 1815 was not a good year for Davy Crockett. 
His wife died, and he himself caught malaria and almost died as well. Soon thereafter, though, he married the widow Elizabeth Patton, who had two children of her own, and they would have three more children together. In 1817, the Crockett family moved west to Lawrence County, where Davies set up a gristmill, a distillery, and a gunpowder factory. He ran for the office of county commissioner and then was appointed justice of the peace. On that, he remarked, quote, This was a hard business on me, for I could barely write my own name. But to do this, and write warrants too, was at least a huckleberry over my persimmon. In 1821, Crockett resigned his seat as commissioner and won a seat in the Tennessee General Assembly, where he supported legislation to ease the tax burden on the poor. The Tennessee River flooded that year, destroying his businesses, so Crockett packed up his family and once again moved west. In 1824, he ran for the United States House of Representatives, but lost, so he decided to go bear hunting instead. In seven months during the winter of 1825, he claimed to bag 105 black bears, selling them for their hides, meat, and oil. With that much time in the woods to think, he decided to run for the house again, but having spent so much time alone, he felt that, quote, the thought of having to make a speech made my knees feel might weak and set my heart to fluttering, almost as bad as my first love scrape with the Quaker's niece. It was probably just such colloquialisms that got him elected. And in 1827, Davy Crockett set out for my hometown of Washington, D.C. He rented a room at Mrs. Ball's boarding house for a dollar a day, $2 if he drank Mrs. Ball's whiskey. Congressmen in boarding houses, boy, those were different times. He set about to lobby for the poor and the common folks in his constituency, but found it all a bit boring. There's too much talk, he said. Many men seem proud. They can say so much about nothing. Their tongues keep working, whether they've got any grist to grind or not. On second thought, maybe things haven't changed all that much. In 1828, Crockett was re-elected, and Andrew Jackson was elected president. Despite having served under Jackson in the militia, Crockett often found himself in opposition to the president, never more so than on the subject of the Indian Removal Act. Jackson set out to forcibly remove all Native people to west of the Mississippi River. This removal, later called the Trail of Tears, led to the deaths of thousands. Crockett fiercely opposed the act and was, in fact, the only Tennessean to vote against it. I believed it was a wicked, unjust measure, he said. I voted against this Indian bill, and my conscience yet tells me that I gave a good, honest vote and one that I believe will not make me ashamed in the Day of Judgment. I don't know about Judgment Day, but on Election Day, the people of Tennessee spoke with their votes and voted Crockett out of office. In 1831, a play called Lion of the West came out, featuring a coonskin cap-wearing folk hero named Nimrod Wildfire. While it never says so explicitly, the character was clearly based on Crockett. It reminded the people of his district why they loved him so much and made him a national celebrity. In 1833, Crockett was re-elected to the House, but for the last time. After losing the next election, he said, quote, I told the people of my district that I would serve them as faithfully as I have done, but if not, they might all go to hell, and I, I would go to Texas. And go to Texas he did. In January of 1836, he arrived in Texas and swore an oath of allegiance to the provisional Tejano government. And, wearing his buckskins and his trademark coonskin cap, he headed west for the last time in his life, bound for San Antonio. On March 6th of that year, General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana began his siege on the tiny mission we remember as the Alamo. The siege lasted 90 minutes, and... At its end, none of the defenders were left alive. Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, Buckaroo, Scout, Militiaman, Businessman, Father of Eight, Bear Slayer, Congressman, and Defender of the Alamo, was dead at 49.
Six weeks later, former Tennessee governor and future president of the Republic of Texas, Sam Houston, would avenge the Alamo at the Battle of San Jacinto. Roughly a decade after that, at the outbreak of the Mexican-American War, President James Polk asked Tennessee to rally 2,600 men to go to war. Within a week, remembering the death of one of their own, remembering the Alamo, more than 30,000 Tennesseans had answered his call. From then on, Tennessee would be known proudly as the Volunteer State. Well, that farmer, he's a-pullin' up them weeds again. And he's a-tryin' to tend to the family's needs again. But the bank's on a binge, taking back the deeds again. So all that he's a-growin' is old. In March of 1925, the governor of Tennessee signed into law the Butler Act. This new law made it unlawful in any institution supported by public school funds, including universities, to, quote, teach any theory that denies the story of the divine creation of man as taught in the Bible, and to teach instead that man has descended from a lower order of animals, end quote. To do so was made a misdemeanor offense, punishable by no less than $100 and no more than $500. Soon thereafter, in the small town of Dayton, Tennessee, a man named George Rappelier got wind that the American Civil Liberties Union was interested in trying a test case to oppose the Butler Act. He called a meeting of town leaders to be held at Robinson's Drugstore. In attendance at this meeting was Earl Robinson, owner of the store and the self-proclaimed hustling druggist, who was also the chairman of the county school board. Also attending were Walter White, school superintendent, lawyer Wallace Haggard, city attorney Herbert Hicks, and his brother, Sue. In an interesting side note, several years later, author Shel Silverstein was attending a judicial conference in Gatlinburg, at which Sue Hicks was the speaker. Sitting there, he got the idea for a song he sold to Johnny Cash, called A Boy Named Sue. In reality, Sue Hicks had been named for his mother, who died in childbirth. But back to the meeting at Robinson's Drugstore. Rappelier gathered these men together and laid out his idea to host this trial in Dayton. Think of the publicity. The hotels would sell out. Business would be booming. It would really put Dayton on the map. The men agreed and called in the high school biology teacher, W.F. Ferguson. He wanted nothing to do with this scheme. Next, they brought in John Thomas Scopes, a 24-year-old math, chemistry, and physics teacher from Kentucky. In addition to teaching these subjects, Scopes also coached football, basketball, and baseball at the high school. He agreed to go along with the plan. He had substituted for Ferguson when Ferguson had been out sick. And while he didn't remember what he had taught on those days, it quite possibly could have been evolution. After all, it was right there in the state-approved textbook. Scopes was arrested for violating the Butler Act, and the ACLU was contacted and quickly agreed to pay for his defense. The people of Dayton were ecstatic and began plans for the trial. Nearby Chattanooga tried to steal the case, and the people of Dayton decided to move it up from the fall to the second week in July. They had to call John Scopes back from his summer vacation early. The World's Christian Fundamentals Association got wind of the trial and convinced one of America's best and most well-known orators, William Jennings Bryan, to take the case, and to take it pro bono, no less. Bryan, known as the Great Commoner, had thrice been the Democratic Party's nominee for president. In 1896, he had gained national attention with his Cross of Gold speech at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. He had also served as Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson. Bryan was also a devout Christian and renowned fundamentalist. His entrance into the trial moved it into the big leagues. On the other side of the aisle, defending Scopes, 
would be Clarence Darrow, one of America's most famous criminal lawyers and a known agnostic. He was fresh off of a big win in the Loeb-Leopold murder case and couldn't pass on the opportunity to go up against Brian. The stage was set, and in the second week of July, 1925, the nation and the world turned its attention to Dayton, Tennessee, and the state of Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes. The judge for the trial would be John Tate Rolston. Thousands of people descended on Dayton from all over the country and the world. 120 reporters came, and many papers even sent their editors to cover the trial. 65 telegraph operators were on hand to wire news to Europe and Australia. After all, their man Charles Darwin was on trial as well. WGN Radio in Chicago would broadcast the trial live, the first time this was ever done. A carnival-like atmosphere prevailed in the town with refreshment stands and monkey souvenirs. The police even got in on the act, with Monkey Town Police signs taped to their motorcycles. The Morgan Hotel hired a jazz band for the entire week. There was even a trained chimpanzee wandering the streets. It was like nothing Dayton had ever seen before. The trial began on July 10th and would last 11 days. While Scopes admitted to teaching evolution, he pled not guilty on the grounds that the Butler Act violated his constitutional rights under the First and Fourteenth Amendments. The actual trial of John Scopes the Man took just five hours, and it was, in fact, the only five hours during the entire 11 days that the jury was present. Several students were called to the stand and testified that Scopes had taught them the fundamentals of evolution. Scopes himself had coached the witnesses to be sure they weren't perjuring themselves by their testimony. Scopes never took the stand himself, as Darrow admitted that they agreed with the student testimony. The remainder of the trial was spectacle, put on for the benefit of the press and the spectators. But it was not a joke. On trial were the First and Fourteenth Amendments, the academic freedom of teachers versus that of students, the government's rights versus the rights of parents, and science versus religion. On the fourth day of the trial, Assistant Defense Attorney Dudley Malone begged the court to allow the testimony of scientists to be admitted. His passionate speech defended teachers and stated that while there may be a conflict between evolution and the Old Testament, the defense saw no conflict between evolution and Christianity. On day six, when Judge Ralston still refused to allow the testimony of evolution experts, Darrow accused him of bias for the prosecution. I hope you do not mean to reflect upon the court, Ralston exclaimed. Well, Darrow responded, your honor has the right to hope. The first week of testimony, with these and a few other notable exceptions, did not yield the results the media had hoped for. By the weekend, many had packed up and headed elsewhere. It's a shame, really, because the following Monday was an exciting day. Because of the oppressive July heat and Ralston's fear that the huge crowds might fall through the courtroom floor, he moved the trial outside under the shade of a willow tree. That day, Darrow called Brian to the stand to testify as an expert witness on the Bible. The back and forth is fantastic, with Darrow asking Brian if he ever discovered where Cain found his wife, and Brian responding, No, sir. I leave the agnostics to hunt for her. When Judge Ralston decided he had finally had enough, the jury deliberated for about nine minutes. They found Scopes guilty of violating the Butler Act, and Ralston fined him the minimum of $100. After the trial, Brian stayed in Tennessee to prepare his 15,000-word summary for publication. The following Sunday, he traveled to Chattanooga, to deliver the morning prayer at a church there. That afternoon, he took a nap and died in his sleep. He is buried at Arlington Cemetery, just outside my hometown of Washington, D.C., under the fitting inscription, He Kept the Faith. John Thomas Scopes went on to study geology at the University of Chicago, 
and went to work for an oil company in Louisiana. When his case was appealed to the Tennessee Supreme Court, it was overturned on a technicality because the judge had set the fine instead of the jury. Because Scopes was no longer an employee of the state of Tennessee, the case was not retried. Because the decision was overturned, the desired outcome of taking it to the U.S. Supreme Court failed to materialize. The Butler Act was finally repealed in 1967, when another teacher, Gary Scott, brought a class action suit against the state after being dismissed for teaching evolution. In 1973, Tennessee was the first state to pass a so-called equal time law, providing equal time for the teaching of evolution and other theories, including those from the book of Genesis. In 1975, ironically the 50th anniversary of the Scopes trial, this so-called Genesis bill was declared unconstitutional. Over 40 years later, and nearly 100 years after the Scopes trial, the battle rages on. As a former science teacher in the Deep South myself, I was always glad I taught Earth science and didn't have to get into all that. Through my travels, I've heard many wonderful creation myths from many different cultures, none necessarily more or less plausible than Genesis. The proof behind these ideas is faith, and faith cannot be argued against. And the fact remains that nobody really knows the truth with 100% certainty. So I say, let the science teachers teach science, and the Sunday school teachers and parents teach what they teach, and let the students soak it all in and decide for themselves. And if all else fails, you can always go into a history classroom and teach them about the famous monkey trial of 1925 that, for 11 days, put the spotlight on the tiny town of Dayton, Tennessee. My tailor swift ham sandwich tastes swell Munching on a juicy Kelly dill pickler I'm thinking about my songs that I can sell In June of 1923, Ralph Peer traveled from New York City to Atlanta, Georgia. At the time, Peer worked for OK Records and brought with him heavy and cumbersome recording equipment. His goal was to make one of, if not the first, field recording, recordings made outside of a recording studio. He rented an empty building on Nassau Street where he set up his equipment. This was acoustic recording equipment. If you can imagine one of those old-time record players, you know the ones with the giant horns on them? This was the same idea, except instead of music coming out of the horn, you played music into the horn, and a recording stylist scratched what it heard onto an album. They were pretty primitive, but they worked. On July 14th, Pierre made, as far as I can figure, four recordings. He recorded Pawn Shop Blues by Lucy Bogan and Grievous Blues by Fannie Mae Gooseby. These would be labeled as race records and would be targeted at southern black consumers. He also recorded two tracks by a local white artist named Fiddlin' John Carson, The Little Log Cabin in the Lane, and The Old Hen Cackled and the Rooster is Going to Crow. These were some of the very first recordings of a genre of music called hillbilly music at the time, and later rebranded as country music. Peer wasn't particularly fond of Fiddlin' John Carson's recordings, but was convinced by OK's local distributor and also the man who had suggested this session, Phil Brockman, to press 500 copies. At the next Fiddler's convention in Atlanta, Phil sold all 500 and ordered another thousand. The Little Log Cabin in the Lane would go on to sell half a million copies. More importantly, it proved the commercial viability of this rural hillbilly music. The following year, a hillbilly singer from Carroll County, Virginia, named Ernest Stoneman, made his way to New York to record for OK. He and Ralph Peer became friends, and the importance of this friendship will become clear momentarily. The same year, 1924, across the river in New Jersey, a man named Vernon Dallard recorded a song called Wreck of the Old 97, 
This song, sold a million copies then, has sold over 7 million copies to date, and became one of the top-selling records of the day. There was definitely a market out there for hillbilly music. The following fall, Victor released the orthophonic Victrola, which was designed to play electrically recorded records, a process which utilized the latest technology, the microphone. It also meant that recording equipment was both higher quality and significantly smaller. A combination of these factors, more portable equipment and an expanding market for hillbilly music, gave the Victor Talking Machine Company the idea that they should give field recordings a go. They just needed someone with good connections and a good ear. They approached Ralph Peer, and he signed on with them for the startlingly low salary of a dollar a year. He only had two stipulations. First, that he be given the independence to record who, what, and where he wanted. And second, that he would own the publishing rights to whatever he recorded. That agreed on, he just needed to figure out where to go. He turned to his new friend Ernest Stoneman. Stoneman suggested a town near his home in Appalachia, an area full of talent and potential. The town he suggested was Bristol, Tennessee. Pierre put it on his itinerary for a trip to include Charlotte and Savannah. He took out an ad in the local Bristol paper, calling for people to come in and record. He sent two engineers and his new electronic recording equipment ahead of him on the train, and then drove down to Bristol. They chose for their makeshift recording studio the Taylor Christian Hat and Glove Company at 408 State Street. They planned to be there from July 25th to August 5th. The first few days, they recorded Ernest Stoneman and his family and friends from the area. This was great, but they had a whole week to fill and the response was not what they had hoped for. An article in the local newspaper changed all of that. It stated that Stoneman had made $3,600 the previous year, nearly three and a half times the average American income, from royalties alone. It also said that he had made $100 in cash for his recordings in Bristol, over a month's pay for people in those parts. The following week, people poured in. People came from all over the region, from Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, and North Carolina. That following Monday, August 1st, started with an amazing recording of a song called Black Eyed Susie by J.P. Nestor. And then, in a moment that Ralph Peer and anyone else who was there would never forget, in walked the Carter family. Peer later remembered, quote, they just wandered in. He was dressed in overalls, and the women looked just like country girls from way back there. They looked like hillbillies, end quote. The he was A.P. Carter, and the women were his wife Sarah and his brother's wife Mabel, who at the time was eight months pregnant. While they had only come 25 miles to get to Bristol, the lack of roads had made it an all-day affair, with three flat tires along the way. Yes, they must have been quite a sight. But then, they started to sing, and everyone's whole perception changed. Mabel started playing guitar, keeping a rhythm while also picking out a melody, in a style she had learned from Leslie Riddle, but which had never been heard in hillbilly music before. It came to be known as the Carter Scratch. Their voices were heavenly. They recorded six songs over the next two days, and, at $50 a track, walked out with $300 cash and a recording contract. Peer pioneered the recording contract, paying people $50 a track up front and two cents a copy for each record sold. In return, he got publishing rights and an exclusive contract to manage their careers personally. Everyone wins. The Carter family would go on to be one of the most prolific groups in all of country music recording over 300 songs, and influencing countless other artists. And it all started in Bristol. Later that week, in strolled Jimmy Rogers and his band. They had heard about the recording sessions at a boarding house run by one of Jimmy's bandmates' mother. When they arrived in Bristol, though, they had a falling out over what to call themselves. 
Jimmy Rogers ended up recording as himself, and his band recorded as the Teneva Ramblers. Jimmy Rogers had grown up working for the railroad in Mississippi and got a lot of musical influence from the African Americans he worked with, and there were cadence songs. He recorded two songs that week, The Soldier's Sweetheart and Sleep Baby Sleep, but that was enough for Pierre to sign him. Sleep Baby Sleep features his trademark Blue Yodel, which was more Black Field Holler than Swiss Mountain Yodel. If you've never listened to Jimmy Rogers, you really should. You'll understand why his music was such a huge influence on so many. Doing black music with a southern accent? He was Elvis before Elvis was born. He influenced everyone from Gene Autry and Merle Haggard, to Elvis and Jerry Lee, to Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters. He's not called the father of country music for nothing, and his career, too, started in Bristol. Meanwhile, his former band, now called the Tenova Ramblers, recorded a song called The Longest Train I Ever Saw. It was later covered by Lead Belly as Where Did You Sleep Last Night, which later became a hit for Nirvana. Some of my other favorites from that week were Alfred Carnes, who was way ahead of his time and sounds more like 60s folk music than 20s folk music. Banjoist B.F. Shelton's ballads are simply haunting, and I would say the same about the Alcoa Quartet, who sang unaccompanied by instrumentation. The West Virginia Coon Hunters recorded some serious toe-tappers, and L. Watson, the only African-American recorded that week, kills it with his harmonica. This two-week recording spree has come to be known as the Bristol Sessions. The diversity of sounds that come from these sessions and the impact it had on music as a whole, plus the discovery of two of country music's most notorious acts, the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers, led country music historian Nolan Porterfield to refer to it as the Big Bang of country music. Johnny Cash called it the single most important event in the history of country music. Granted, he may have been jaded since he married into the Carter family. And maybe it was just the timing of it all. Recording technology was changing. Transportation was improving. And there was a new player in the game. A little thing called radio. Regardless, from July 25th to August 5th, 1927, the stars aligned over Bristol, Tennessee, and inside a hat and glove company on State Street and popular music would never be the same. Yeah, life is all but perfect Except for one thing about being free Sometimes the lonely gets to me In 1942, the United States government needed to build a very large building. To make this happen, they chose someone who knew a thing or two about large buildings, Lieutenant General Leslie Richard Groves Jr. of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Groves had overseen the construction of the Pentagon just outside my hometown of Washington, D.C. The Pentagon at the time was one of the largest buildings in the world, but this new building it would be bigger. Groves needed to find a location for this massive building, and the location he chose was a 59,000-acre plot along the Clinch River in Tennessee. It was an ideal location for his building in many ways. There were only about 3,000 people living there at the time, meaning both cost and displacement would be minimal. It was in an isolated mountainous region, but being just 20 miles from Knoxville, it had both highway and rail access. Plus, thanks to the relatively newly constructed Norris Dam, part of the Tennessee Valley Authority, they had access to plentiful water and electricity. This building would require a lot of electricity. The location decided, Groves and his team went to work. The current residents were paid a paltry $45 an acre, and some were given just two weeks to vacate homes that had been in their families for generations. In total, the government bought the entire tract for $2.5 million. Work began on October 6, 1942. In addition to building the biggest building in the world, though, 
They also had to staff it and to house the staff. This project was so big, in fact, that they were going to have to build an entire town. On November 2nd, supplies began to arrive. And boy, did they arrive. 200 million board feet of lumber came in, as did 400,000 cubic yards of concrete, 50,000 tons of structural steel, and another 50,000 tons of miscellaneous steel and iron would be used in the project. 300 miles of roads would be built, along with 55 miles of rail lines. This was a government complex, so it also needed to be secure. Nine square miles of fence were put up, secured by gates and guard towers. The architecture firm of Skidmore, Owings, and Merritt was brought in to lay out the town site, and houses and apartment buildings started to go up. The original projected population for this new town was 13,000, and at its peak, they were building 1,000 houses a month, or an average of 32 a day. In addition to housing, other facilities began to emerge. The town would eventually have 22 grocery stores, 9 drug stores, 10 clothing stores, 16 restaurants, 5 movie theaters, 4 bowling alleys, a skating rink, and the largest spring-fed pool in America. There were even tennis courts, which, being the only paved surfaces in town, would double as dance floors. Originally just called Project X, and then the Clinton Engineer Works, Groves decided his town needed a real name. He entertained suggestions like Valhalla and Shangri-La, but eventually settled on Oak Ridge, after Black Oak Ridge, a natural feature in the area. In order to staff the project, Groves and his team actively recruited from high schools and colleges. Taking advantage of the patriotic sympathies brought forth by World War II, these recruits were told they would be working to support the war effort and their country. The pay and conditions were good, and most jobs weren't actually that hard. The one caveat was that they weren't allowed to ask questions about their jobs, nor were they allowed to discuss them. They were to come in, do their jobs, and go home. This requirement wasn't all that unusual during World War II. Loose lips sink ships, after all. And more employees seemed to arrive every day, and there was a job for all of them. By 1945, the population of Oak Ridge had reached 75,000 people becoming the fifth largest city in Tennessee in just over a year and a half. Workers were even bused in from surrounding cities. In fact, Oak Ridge's bus service became the sixth largest bus operation in the United States. During July 1944, Oak Ridge buses carried 700,000 passengers and traveled a whopping 1.3 million miles. Between the needs of the citizens of Oak Ridge and the massive requirements of the work they were doing, the town used an amazing one-seventh of the total electricity in the United States. That's really something. And we must not forget about the building, the one all of this was built to support. This massive U-shaped building would be half a mile long, a thousand feet wide, and four stories high. In total, it had a million square feet of floor space. It was built at a cost of $512 million. At its peak, it employed 12,000 people who worked in three shifts around the clock. This building, the largest in the world at that time, had the very utilitarian name K-25. Two other buildings were built to support the efforts at Oak Ridge, X-10 and Y-12. These three buildings each served a unique purpose, but only a small handful of people in Oak Ridge knew what that purpose was. And that purpose would remain a secret until August 7, 1945. On that day, the citizens of Oak Ridge would learn what they had been working on that whole time in the newspapers along with the rest of the world. You see, all of this time and effort and energy and money went to producing one thing. And at the end of it all, everything they had worked for, everything they had worked to produce, could easily fit within one single gallon milk jug. But that was enough. That was more than enough. 
This product was divided into coffee cup-sized containers, which were then loaded carefully into gold-lined briefcases, handcuffed to the wrists of specially trained couriers, who then carried them on passenger trains from Oak Ridge, Tennessee to Los Alamos, New Mexico. There, it was gathered and loaded into a bomb called Little Boy. And on August 6, 1945, that bomb was detonated over the city of Hiroshima in the Empire of Japan. All of that time and energy in Oak Ridge had gone into enriching uranium into the highly volatile isotope U-235. Along with sites in Los Alamos and Hanford, Washington, Oak Ridge, Tennessee was an essential component in the top secret operation codenamed the Manhattan Project. In Happyville Where they're happy still That's it for the show this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review the podcast. It really helps. From here, I'm headed out to West Tennessee for the next few weeks to see what kind of wonderful places I can find and what adventures I can get into. To follow along or to get in touch with me, please visit my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com that's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles to go tweet and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep, all using the number two for me and you. Many thanks once again to Sam Cooper and Chris Gantry for the music this week. If you're in Nashville, you can find Sam every Wednesday from noon until 8 p.m. at Bobby's Idol Hour and on Monday nights at the Gold Rush. For more information, check out his website, www.jericat.com, jerrycat.com. Background music and sound effects come from Kevin McLeod over at incomptechmusic.com and the great folks at freesfx.com. Our theme music from the incomparable Memphis Slim. Thanks again for listening. I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Until next time, keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.